Hello, hello, and welcome to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we've got a packed show for you. First up, we unveil the winners of the Southeastern Film Critics Association Annual Film Awards. After that, we have a brief discussion about streaming, the box office, and the changing business of cinema. Plus, we highlight a few of the films we've been watching lately, and we round it out with a look at the latest film from Ryan Coogler. It's Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Joining us for all of it is the wonderful Omaya Jones. Stick around. Before we get into the show, don't forget Art House Garage has a Patreon. Sign up today for extended episodes, bonus episodes, video episodes, and ad-free episodes. All that, plus a discount on merch in the Art House Garage shop. Go to patreon.com slash arthousegarage today, or find a link in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. Welcome to Art House Garage. Today on the show, we are going to do a few different things. We're going to talk about the winners of the Southeastern Film Critics Association that just came out. That's the group I'm a part of that I voted in. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, just cinema and the box office and, and kind of the effects of streaming and some of that. There's some a lot of think pieces out about that kind of stuff right now. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that with Omaya Jones, and we're also going to talk about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. All of that we're actually going to talk about with Omaya Jones, who is here now. Thank you for joining once again, Omaya. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about some things that uh, have been cropping up in the film world lately. Yes. Yeah. Out of all my friends, you're the one who who will just text me like an article that's about uh, here's how cinema is changing and you have some thoughts about it. And I was like, that would be great to talk about on the podcast. So we're going to finally do that. Um, so we're going to do a few different things. So before we do that, we are going to talk about the the winners of the Southeastern Film Critics Association that I mentioned. Um, and just before we do that, I thought you're also a person who has thoughts about like film lists and top 10 lists and ranking things. And um, I think you I saw some tweets or some texts or something recently just about um yeah, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts generally about like top 10. So you're someone I've, we also talked about that quite a bit. Um, just, you know, how ranking art at all is, is kind of ridiculous and um, maybe, you know, top five, whatever, whatever is not the, the best way to engage with art all the time. Uh, but I think I saw you, you said something online about, you know, it can be useful in different ways. Uh, so yeah, what do you think about film lists and ranking? Yeah, so I think what you saw was in response to the decennial sight and sound poll that came out in the past oh, couple yeah, that's of weeks. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so you know there was a huge upheaval in sort of the ranking of the films in that list. And, and generally, generally, I'm not a fan of ranked lists. I, I think yeah. a lot of times you end up comparing apples and oranges or apples mm -hmm. and acorns or something. You know, like yeah. they're just different films have different objectives and they're just doing completely different things, and it doesn't always make sense to rank them. Um, in theory, I think I also have a problem with something like the ensemble is the idea of like um, a list of objective, the objectively greatest films of all time, yeah, because yeah. there's nothing objective about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that um, what we've seen with this new poll are people sort of embracing the subjectivity of it all. And they're, mm -hmm. they're more free to um, let their own taste sort of dictate what they put on their list. 
And so I was reading a little bit about like the history of the poll. And I think what you see is in the first two editions of it, there is more of that. There's more of people sort of arguing and responding to the mm -hmm. previous poll. But the problem is it comes out every 10 years. And so when you get to like the third poll, um, you're talking about things that have sort of been cemented for 30 years. Yeah. And it mm -hmm. seems like like at some point, um, it just becomes more of a gradual process of things moving up the list and you don't get these radical shifts often. Yeah. Um, but over the last few polls, there's a, there's a, a writer named Kevin B. Lee, I think is his name and he's on Twitter and he was posting a bunch of, uh, stats about the poll. And one of the things that I thought was striking was just how like, so this year there were 1600 people that voted a little over yeah. 1600. The previous poll was like 800 and the previous poll was fewer than that. And so just by expanding the pool of voters, uh, I also think, Twitter, social media, uh, it's like a new generation of people who did film studies, who just have like a broader horizons in terms of the kind of things that they're interested in and what they're looking for in a film. Uh, and all of that made a made a, a list that is just more interesting just in terms of giving people something new to talk about and generating discussion. Um, on the same topic, you know, there's been a lot of blowback um against ao scott for the his new york times top yeah, 10 yeah. list i was gonna bring that up too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but i but i think like his list is doing what a list a good list would do which is just provoke discussion mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. there's this populist bit i think in a lot of reactions to this stuff bill maher has talked about this you see this on like uh, conservative talk radio from time to time just this idea that like top 10 lists or end of your top 10 list should better represent box office mm -hmm. um but what the people who are generating these lists are, they're just doing something different. It's a completely different project. Yeah. And the idea that box office is a marker of quality uh, is not their concern at all. Yeah. 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 I agree with all that. And yeah, I was going to exactly what you said about like the number of voters for sight and sound being so big, like that's a good thing. Um, and in having a more interesting list and just, yeah, generally, so like when I started listening to film podcasts and kind of getting into film criticism more, realizing oh like the top 10 list at the end of the year that's a big deal like everyone has their list and um and yeah it, it after I, like i started doing that myself then I, I did realize yeah apples and oranges as you're saying like how do i compare black panther wakanda forever to the banshees of inishirin that doesn't even make sense like why would i say okay which one is one which one is two out of like that doesn't that doesn't make any sense but where they are useful i think is like you're saying generating discussion and that because that's what i always loved about um, when I was starting to listen to film critics was like just hearing, uh, hearing them talk about why did I put this on my list? Why do I love this? And like listening to podcasts where again, that's the discussion. It's exactly, exactly the thing I was going to highlight as well. Um, but yeah, like with the A.O. Scott list, you start to see things, um, people arguing that a list is elitist or like, which is, I think on Twitter, I see very frequently how film critics are elitist. I mean, like it's their whole job to watch a lot of things and try to highlight the good things. Like it's, it's because you didn't put, um, you know, everything everywhere all at once on your top 10, you must be elitist. Right. Uh, these, these films I've never heard of, which is such an interesting thing. Speaking of that film, actually one of the directors, the Daniels, I can't remember which, I think Daniel Kwan mm -hmm. put out a thing on Twitter. I don't know if you saw about, I know, did. Yeah. Like basically <laughs> like the film bros who are like, why wouldn't you have this movie on your list? And he's like calling them out and saying, that's not the purpose of this. Like chill out a little bit. I'll find that tweet and link to it. Cause I thought it was really good. Um, and I think he says the same thing. Like, you know, the idea is to broaden people's, you know, exposure to different things. So anyway, right. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I would say like everything, everything, everything everywhere <laughs> all at once is a perfect example of a film that like doesn't need to be on a list because yeah, it was really financially successful. And so if you're gonna, if you, if you have some cultural cachet with, with your ability to get something published in New York times, why not use that to expose people to something like Ia, which I have not seen yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think I had heard it talked about on one of the film comment podcasts when they were doing the festival uh, circuit, either TIFF or can or whatever. Um, and it sounded really interesting. And so like, I'm excited to be able to get to see that at some point. Um, but I'm sure like a lot of people don't listen to film comment. And so yeah. it's just probably not on their radar at all. Mm-hmm. And so if AO Scott puts this on this list and it gets people to see it, great. Uh, another example, just with like sight and sound poll, is um, are you familiar with Matthew Iglesias? Uh, I know the name. Yeah, yeah he's uh, one of the founders of Vox, okay, um, yeah. and now he he does a, he has a subset called Slow Boring, but he's like a policy writer, right? He's not like a film person, but when the sight and sound poll came out, it got him to watch Gene Dillman, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and he seemed to appreciate it, and so like it's like I was like already the list is doing its job, yeah. Absolutely. I think yeah, more voices is always a better thing. And, and it, this has been highlighted as well, like more diverse voices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, you know, a lot of the critics I see, uh, not, not film critics, I mean, like people being critical of the sight and sound thing or, oh, it's too woke. We're adding, you know, Portrait Lady on fire and getting rid of, I don't know, Raging Bull or something. I can't remember. I, I think Raging Bull is one of the ones that is not on the list this time. Um, yeah, just a it, it's different, different goals in mind or different um, thoughts about what the list should be. Yeah, so that's all interesting and an interesting segue into uh, talking about SEFCA, which is, again, the Southeastern Film Critics Association. Um, so, yeah, I, as talking to you over the years and, and thinking about, you know, ranking and lists and all of that. Um, and I started to see other critics, actually, who would say, I'm not going to do a top 10. I'm just going to say, OK, here are 10 of my favorite movies. It's pointless to put them in any order. Like, let's just go alphabetical or whatever. Um, so I started thinking about that. And then, well, when I do my southeastern film critic association voting i have to rank those <laughs> there's like that part of that that i'm just required to do um so i, I do have a top 10 list which i'm going to talk about in another episode um and the other thing with that is like the day i voted here's how i felt about it two weeks later i have probably changed my mind you know about like the order and whatever else so it, it's so subjective as you were saying and it's it's ultimately um I don't know what's what's the point and like is is the idea to as you're saying um expose people to different things or is the idea to say here are the actual best or here are my favorite and like how do you parse all of that and what does any of that mean it's all so subjective so I think taking all those things with a huge grain of salt is important but it's interesting so like the reason that I um am excited about you know being an association that is southeastern film critics so theoretically if you live in the Southeast, maybe a Southeastern film critic is a little more aligned with your taste or something versus, you know, New York critic or a Chicago critic, whatever. Um, so th- that's always how I felt a little bit about, you know, different groups in different parts of the country, different parts of the world. I mean, thinking about like the difference between Oscar voters and Golden Globe voters, like people get so uh, all the hype around Golden Globes and there's been tons of controversy there, but like realizing like it's like a hundred people that vote mm-hmm. for those and they're, they're foreign film critic or foreign film press people who, who like just have a lot of money and are put on a big show versus like theoretically the Oscars should be Oscar voters are, are like filmmakers voting about filmmakers. So all of that is you always to pay attention to where that information is coming from. Anyway, 
Sefka is a group of film critics from the Southeast, Arkansas, like myself, uh, some from Texas, Nashville, and Tennessee areas, uh, Georgia, several in Georgia. And we vote every year. We have a, a ballot and do a top 10 and we do our top three actors and actresses and, and all those things. So uh, in a later episode, I'm going to talk about what I voted for. But today we are going to talk about the winners because they just came out yesterday uh, as of this recording, Monday, December 12th. Uh, actually, no, they just came out today. Today's the day. So let's look at the winners, shall we? Drum roll, please. And so one interesting thing is that the different groups may have different awards. So one that we have that is interesting and kind of unique to us is the Gene Wyatt Award. This is the film that best evokes the spirit of the South. Mm. And the winner this year is Elvis. Did you see Elvis? I have not seen Elvis yet. Uh, it's one of those lists. It's one of those films I just haven't gotten around to yet. Yeah. And hopefully... Um, Maybe starting in January, I'll be able to sit down and just catch up on some things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Elvis either, actually. That's one that I <laughs> meant to catch up with and didn't. The runner-up for that was Till, which I did see and I thought was very good. Uh, so I was happy with that one. For best score, the winner was The Batman, Michael Giacchino, which uh, actually had that on my list. I think it was third on my ballot. I really like that score a lot. And, you know, it does so many interesting things with um, Ave Maria and it kind of folds that into it and uh i don't know it just really fits that film and, and michael giacchino i think is a, one of the the best uh composers working these days so that was i was happy with that win and the runner-up was the fablemans john williams score for that after um that one we go to hold on i'm losing my place on the thing here best, best cinematography. cinematography yes are you looking at the list yourself yes i am yeah i got, I got it pulled up here how do you have it? Is it? Oh, I guess it's published today. It's, it? Yeah, it's published on their website. Yeah. <laughs> but cinematography, uh, the winner there, Top Gun Maverick, and then runner up, The Fablemans, uh, which uh, Top Gun Maverick, the cinematographer is Claudio Miranda. And, uh, you know, can't argue with that. It's a really incredible um, film visually. And uh, I'm certainly a fan of that movie. Best animated film. Maybe I should do runner up first, actually, and then. <laughs> drum roll to the winner i've been doing it backwards the runner-up was marcel the shell with shoes on which is actually what i voted for and then the winner is uh guillermo del toro's pinocchio film which i really liked a lot as well have you seen pinocchio i think it just came out today didn't it, it just came out on netflix uh if not today or over the weekend. very very recently yeah. um and i have not seen it yet um but i'm excited to catch up with that and marcel the shell i still haven't seen that either I love Marcel. It's I think it's so beautiful, and, and you know I have the nostalgia of those videos from ten years ago. Uh, but yeah, Pinocchio is really amazing too. Like just visually, it's incredible, and, and the voice acting is all really really good. So highly recommend both of those. Best foreign language film. The runner up is Decision to Leave, the Park Chan Wook film. Just um, came out on movie. Yes, I've seen it also, and it's excellent, very good. And the winner is RRR. Have you watched RRR? I have not. No, man, it is so good. I love it so much. It is a wild, wild movie. Uh, and you know, I'm like, I'm not that into action movies, generally mm -hmm. speaking. Like, I like a good action movie, but and this, that's what this is. But it's very, very good, and I, I'm a big, big fan of it. Uh, is this one on I, Netflix? It is on Netflix. So there's an interesting thing with RRR because it's, it's an, made in India. It's not Bollywood, but Tollywood, um, which I've just kind of recently learned the differences between some of that, which is a, a region of India that speaks a different language. Uh, I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly, but I think it's Telugu is the language. Mm -hmm. And so that's the original language it's in. The Netflix one is a dub to another Indian language. And some people are mad about that. 
Uh, so I, I haven't seen the dub so, version actually, but I think the dub is pretty wait, good. Wait, it's it's dubbed in another Indian language with English subtitles? Correct. Or I think there's an English dub as well. That's on, weird. On Netflix, Netflix yeah. does this weird thing. There was a film that came out a couple of <laughs> years ago. Uh, I forget what it was called. I think it was like called like the platform or or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the platform. Yeah, it is like a prison, like people or like an experiment type thing. Yeah, I haven't seen it, platform. but I know. About yeah, it. Uh, but plot specifics of the movie aside, Netflix did this thing. It's a Spanish language film, and it's dubbed, but the lips match the words. And I know oh, okay. there's like no way that they thing. actually pay. Yes. I think Netflix is using some sort of technology that when they dub movies to make the lips sync up uh, and it's noticeable, or at least this was a couple of years ago, maybe it's gotten better. I don't know, um, but it was noticeable then, but still somewhat subtle hmm, because this is like slightly off. Yeah. No, I want to check that out now. I, mean, I wonder if they did that with um, squid game. I know that was such a big hit and, and a lot of people watch the dub, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see if it has, you know, the lips matching up or not. That's interesting. It reminds me of, um, what's that? There's a film a few years ago, a documentary called Welcome to Chechnya, which is about yes. the oppression of LGBTQ plus yeah. people. Well, this is an artistic decision by the filmmaker. So not a corporation coming in and changing your film. Very different. But what's interesting to protect the identities of the people involved, they like basically deep faked their faces um, or they recorded different actors faces and like digitally inserted them which is a really interesting thing and I, i'm a big fan of that movie but yeah. anyway that was technology. that was the last film that i saw uh pre pre-lockdown oh and in, in the theater. Uh, i was at a i was at a i was at a film festival i yeah. was at true yeah. false and that was the yes, last yes. thing we saw there before we came back wow. and then everything everything shut down mm. wow I, I, I thought it would get more attention like more yeah, I really liked it. I did. I think it was on HBO is where I watched it and I actually did an episode on it with a friend of mine who's a documentarian. Um, speaking of documentaries, yes. that's the next category. The runner up was Goodnight Oppie, which is a documentary about um, space. I actually haven't watched it yet either, um, but I've heard it's very, very good. The winner is Fire of Love, a movie that I adore. I think it's really good. Have you seen Fire of Love? No, but I know it's on Disney Plus. It is. I it's think, on streaming on Disney yeah. Plus now because it's National Geographic and they have like the, the Nat Geo yeah. section there. Um, yeah, so you can watch that one right now on Disney Plus. It's about two volcanologists. These are people who study volcanoes um, and they're very interesting, just historical figures. They, uh, they're they a married couple uh, and they're also one loved shooting video. And so there's tons of footage of them like way too close to volcanoes, to, to lava, uh, which is stunning and really amazing. Um, and then she's a photographer. There's a lot of her photography involved in it as well. Uh, and just like the, there's all kinds of different themes. I don't have to get into it all. I'll talk about it later. It's really, really good. I was a, a huge fan of it. And uh, you can watch it now on Disney+. Plus. The next category is Best Adapted Screenplay. The runner-up there is Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. And uh, this is one of those weird things where they uh, it's technically adapted from the previous film like it's a sequel and so like they're adapting it from the characters that he created or something it's it's strange because it's not based on a book or anything but um that right. there's also only does. one returning character yeah yeah it was like barely adapted from the previous one anyway but i guess uh you know it wouldn't exist without this original material i guess is maybe the logic there i'm not sure but uh anyway the winner there is sarah polly for women talking 
And I am a huge fan of women talking. So I'm very happy with that win. Have you seen women talking? Oh, it's, it comes out December. Right. Or something. Yes. But it played a bunch of different festivals and things. So some people have been able to. I did get yeah. to see knives out the one week it was in theaters though. And I'm oh, glad nice. that I did. Yeah. yeah. Did you, uh, what did you think about it? I thought it was really good. Um, yeah. did you listen to my podcast about it? Yes. You did because I had a few issues. I liked it generally. Yeah. I thought it was good, but I, I was a little bit less uh, high on it than everybody else. But I do think it's good. And uh, also, the theory they gave away these little uh, like die cast lapel pins, like what? collectible lapel. Yeah, it's pretty. Of what is it a sport? Of well, just like outlines of some of the characters, just like designs. Oh, of, look different things. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Wow. Well, the next category is best original screenplay. The runner-up is The Banshees of Inishirin from Martin McDonough. Big fan of that one also. And the winner is Everything Everywhere All at Once from Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Um, so yeah, it's funny. We just talked about, you know, lists making and awards. And I guess awards are different than, you know, top 10 lists, sort of. But um, whether or not Everything Everywhere All at Once needs to be included when it's, you know, so well known. Uh get ready for it to be included some more and in, in <laughs> but um, next up is best director runner-up steven spielberg for the fablemans and best director goes to the daniels daniel kwan and daniel Scheinert for everything everywhere all at once oh by the way i love everything everywhere all at once i think it's really really good and so creative and um very deserving of any any awards that it wins uh next up is best ensemble the runner-up is women talking and that's it's just one uh that's it's so interesting because it has so many different characters that i think i think that they're campaigning rooney mara as the uh like best lead actress um but it, that's that's a tough choice because like she's in it maybe a little more than jesse buckley uh claire foy all these other actors that are that are in it but it's really it really is an ensemble piece so i'm glad that we had it on our, our runner-up at least here and then the winner for best ensemble is Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, which very deserving also, because yeah, such a huge star-studded cast. And all, I love all the um, cameos there as well. So I think that, that falls under the ensemble umbrella a little bit. Next up in the acting category is Best Supporting Actress. The runner-up is Stephanie Sue for Everything Everywhere All at Once, who of course plays uh, Joy slash uh, Jobu Tapaki which is it's such a great role and i think she's so good in it i she was on my ballot i can't remember the exact ranking i had her in but uh, we did for our ballot we do top three for the, everything except for the the top 10 films uh so she was runner up the winner is carrie condon in the banshees of inishirin which is so deserving she is so good in that movie all the actors in that movie are fantastic Speaking of that movie, next up is Best Supporting Actor. The runner-up is Brendan Gleeson from The Banshees of Inishirin, who he's so funny in that and so heartbreaking as well. Very, very good performance. The winner for Best Supporting Actor is Ki Huai Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once, who plays Waymond in that film and is, yeah, fantastic. For Best Actress, our runner-up, this one I was surprised actually at the order. Our runner-up is Kate Blanchett for Tar. Mm. And the winner is Michelle Yeoh for everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm. I thought it might go the other direction, um, but I'm, I'm happy either way. But I think I voted the other direction. But um, yeah, both really, really wonderful performances. And then for best actor, the runner-up is Brendan Fraser in The Whale. And the winner is Colin Farrell in The Banshees of Inishirin, which, yeah, I'm very happy that, that Colin Farrell won. 
And I also think Brendan Fraser is very, very good in The Whale. Um, actually, when we talk in a few minutes about things we've been watching lately, I was going to talk about The Whale. Okay. So more thoughts on that later. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm very, I'm happy that he uh, won that. And next up is the final category, the top 10 films of 2022, according to the Southeastern Film Critics Association. Another drum roll. Here we go. Number 10 is The Batman. Number nine, Nope. Glad that made our list. I think that's, that's great. Number eight is Women Talking. Uh, I've already mentioned that I love, love, love that one. Number seven, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Number six, RRR. Very glad that made our list also. Uh, number five is Top Gun Maverick. Number four is Tar. Number three is The Fablemans. Number two, The Banshees of Inishirin. And one final drum roll, the winner of the top film of 2022 according to sefka is everything everywhere all at once so there you go it uh it kind of swept everything actually we got let's see it won best film best director best actress best supporting actor and best original screenplay how long um how long has sefra been a thing how long has sefka been a thing that's a good question i'm gonna look that up uh i'm sort of curious what is the the history of uh, winners of these awards predicting the Oscar race. Oh, let's see. I mean, actually pretty good. Um, well, at least a little bit kind of good. <laughs> 2020 Nomadland was number one, and that won one best picture. Okay. Uh, 2019 Parasite won, and that won best picture. Um, the website, so I've only voted for two years. I've been for two years. It goes all the way back to 1992. Okay. So, I mean, looking early on, the first winner was Howard's End. That's interesting. Then the next year, 93, was The Piano. 94 was Pulp Fiction. Very cool. 95, we got Apollo 13. Then we got Fargo, L.A. Confidential. These are just the things that won each year. Uh, Saving Private Ryan, American Beauty, Almost Famous, Memento, The Hours, uh, The Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, Sideways, Brokeback Mountain. That's interesting. That's kind of cool. Actually... Uh, I'll keep going for a second. The Departed was 2006. No Country was 2007. No Country for Old Men. Uh, Milk won in 2008. Uh, I was just thinking that's interesting seeing, you know, Broke Up Mountain and Milk, two queer films. And we are here in the South. You might not expect that, which I think is cool. Um, in 2009, Up in the Air. 2010 was The Social Network. 2011, The Descendants. 2012, Argo. 2013, 12 Years a Slave. 2014 was The Grand Budapest Hotel. I don't know if we want to, I'm almost done now. <laughs> it's just interesting to hear. Number 20 for 2015 was Spotlight. That was Best Picture. Okay. For 2016, Moonlight. That was Best Picture. 2017, Get Out. I love that, 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 that one. 2018, Roma. And then I think I said the rest, 2019, Parasite. 2020, Nomadland. 2021, The Power of the Dog. And 2022, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Okay. What won Best Picture last night? I'm blanking. Yeah, you mean a lot this year, earlier this year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't Power of the Dog, right? No, it was. Uh, oh, it was Coda. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I, I wish it was Power of the Dog over Coda, but Coda's. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to keep it positive today. Uh, <laughs> I was going to. Coda's I, good. Coda's I, fine. I, well, so Coda. Coda. I'm going to try to keep it positive. Okay, um, we can skip over that. Because <laughs> I there there are a number of things I know like. Again, this is all very subjective. Um, yep. I don't really get the love for the Batman. 
How interesting. I like the Batman a lot. Um, um, I have opinions, yeah. but this is this today. The tonight is not about that. So I'll just. No, I'm curious. Do you have any other hot takes based on the winners of that? Um, you like or didn't like? Not really. I would say this about everything everywhere all at once, which I think is a mm-hmm. fine film. Uh, but and this is actually not a critique of it. But I just think it's interesting that we are now in an age, um, and I think this goes back to the expansion of the voting populace. Mm-hmm. that a weird movie can win awards uh something yeah, that is yeah. firmly a genre film and mm-hmm. i and i feel like we might talk about this and and um shortly but just like the broadening of what is acceptably mainstream has happened in a mm-hmm. way that i think mm-hmm. is really interesting yeah yeah that's a really good point everything everywhere is such a strange film um and i think yeah it catches people off guards with how strange it is but then how it you know has heart and all of that right. as well and does that really well but yeah I, i'm i'm happy with that winning uh i'm generally pretty happy with all the winners i think last year i was a little bit like the power of the dog swept everything for sethka last year and i liked the power of the dog but it wasn't on a lot of my yeah. my ballot uh things which i can say for everything ever all at once i did have it on for some of the acting things i had it in contention for my top 10 but i ended up edging it out with some other things uh so it was not on my top 10 but again very happy to have that as our our collective number one for the group so there you have it that is the winners of sethka this year you can find more information at sethka.net that's s-e-f-c-a um yeah there you go so moving on from that um we're going to talk a little bit about this discussion piece that you sent me earlier this week um and was it earlier? It was like two days ago. And yeah. it's like, oh, we should put it on the podcast. <laughs> but uh, so it was something from Twitter, but they were sharing an article from the New York Times. Uh, why don't you tell us about uh, the article? And, and or, I was curious too, were you wanting to comment on the Twitter thread that was surrounding that or mostly the article? Uh, I guess the article, um, I, uh, I read the article before we started recording and I read I went through the Twitter thread again and I actually think they might be bad. Um, so, <laughs> so the, the argument here is uh, that highbrow, well, so this is, this is the New York times headline on Twitter, highbrow films aimed at winning Oscars are losing audiences, which I think um, is kind of an interesting thing. And I think you can also fold it in there with a couple of other things. So one of the reasons that I thought the article itself was bad was because of how focused it was on box office. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, recently Martin Scorsese talked about how our obsession with, with box office is perverse. I don't think he used the word perverse, but I will use the word perverse. And it's sort of, <laughs> it's sort of a strange thing. Uh, so there's a, in the article, there's a lot of quoting of box office numbers, you know, tar made yeah, 5 yeah. million versus a $30 million, you know, marketing and production budget and, and all of these things. Um, and then the the Twitter thread itself um, is one of those things is actually really annoying because like the person who's posting is just so interested in the fact that neither they nor anyone that they know has actually seen Tar. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, but it's you know it's like an art film, you know it's like a, it's an indie art house film, doesn't have mainstream appeal. So I think it is often the case that those kinds of films. Um, the majority of people have not seen them. I mean, by the way, if you were to poll all 7 billion people on the planet, 
the majority of people have yeah. not seen most films. That's just the, yeah. the, the way yeah. of the world. But um, I also, I, I wonder if Tar, some of, some of the films that we end up talking about in this vein, I wonder if like in the eighties, it would be more like um, a Cronenberg film a cult mm, film okay. and not the kind of thing that is really aiming for mainstream uh, yeah. Oscar contention. Uh, now, of course, in, with, in the case of Tara Capelich's involvement, I think um, argues against that, but I just, I just wonder if um, we're talking about the wrong thing here. But then the other yeah. thing that I think ties into this is recently there was a, a medium post by somebody who was saying that nobody knows when movies come out anymore. And I also thought his argument was quite bad. (laughs) (laughs) Share that with me later and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, But the argument that they were making in that post that I, that I disagree with is just that uh, the marketing of films is too long. So like he was saying that, you know, Mm -hmm. they're releasing stills two years ahead of time and all, and just teasing the movie. And if you were to ask anybody, when Mario came out, they would tell you that Mario's already out based on all this publicity. Mm, and I sort of question how much of this stuff are people really taking in, you know, if you're not on Twitter yeah. all the time. Um, but what I do think is true is that with the decline of cable or even just um, broadcast television, with people cord cutting and watching streaming and avoiding ads um, and not seeing ads in newspapers, um, how aware are people of what is playing in the theater um yeah because you know tar is not the kind of film that would advertise on live sports and in in terms of live television sports is where it's at right now right like that's like the only thing Mm -hmm. that sort of Mm -hmm. uh has the prestige that it always has had and what they advertise on live sports are blockbusters marvel movies because it's expensive to buy that airtime and so, I, and I, and I think there's just more general awareness of the release cycle of like a Marvel film than there is for an indie film like Atar or Banshees or even the Fablemans. And so, mm-hmm. I wonder if like what's actually happening is a combination of uh, cord cutting, leading to people being less aware because they're not seeing ads, and then also being comfortable watching things in their home. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And so like, I guess the so the New York Times article, which, by the way, is by Brooks Barnes, is the writer there. Um, yeah, a lot about box office. And and one of the arguments is that, okay, so we, we knew in 2020 and 2021 because of COVID that all the box office numbers would be terrible. And they were. But then like 2022 is we're going to see if things return to normal and can these like mid-budget things actually turn a profit. And then a lot of like prestige films are or, you know, tanking at the box office. Uh, and so it seems like that, ex- if that was the experiment, then we're seeing that it failed. But yeah, then he does talk a little bit about um, the, uh, you know, VOD being more of a thing. We're more comfortable watching mm-hmm. this at home. We'll, you know, rent the Banshees of Inishirin for 20 bucks at home when it's, you know, new. Uh, or it's been in the theater for a few weeks, or I think like a three-week window or whatever now. Um, but yeah, I think... But the writer makes, um, yeah, a lot about box office and whether these things can keep getting made. Um, but, but yeah, I think, and they cite different things from years past, like a few kind of films that, you know, this movie actually made money back in the day. Yeah. Um, so like I, I wonder if they're cherry picking a few things where if we looked at a little bit broader, it might be like, there's a lot of films like Tar that didn't make their budget back, but won some Oscars or whatever. 
Yeah. So like they're citing like this are this uh this particular paragraph says or Oscar oriented dramas rarely become blockbusters. Even so, these movies used to do quite well at the box office. The World War One film, nineteen seventeen, generated one hundred and fifty million dollars, one hundred and fifty nine million dollars in North America in twenty nineteen, and three hundred eighty five million worldwide. In twenty ten, Black Swan, starring Natalie Portman as a demented ballerina, collected one hundred and seven million, three hundred twenty nine million worldwide. And so, um, there's definitely some cherry picking there. I think um, it's just, but the movie business itself has changed quite a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder how much of it is just people aren't aware of what's coming out or what what mm-hmm. is coming out, what it's about, because they're just not seeing it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it's and I'm on like film Twitter all the time, so I'm I'm in those conversations. But yeah, I think the general public have never heard of Tar or whatever, and I don't think that's. So I think that the argument, like, oh, none of my friends have ever seen have seen Tar, and and this person on Twitter is also talking a lot about um, the urban planning and how. Uh, it's so hard, such a difficult thing to get out to go to the theater anymore. Um, Very big city centric, you know? Like, yeah, I would yeah. say so. I was like, I don't have that problem. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's definitely interesting. It is, I do think, you know, streaming is changing stuff, but is this article a bit um, alarmist? I think probably so. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens in the next few years. But I, I just can't imagine that the big studios are going to stop making prestige pictures altogether because people aren't going to see them as, as much as they used to when there are still awards to be won and there's still, um, you know, there, there still are audiences for them, even if it's not uh, going to the theater. Sometimes it's those VOD things. It's selling it to a streaming service later. And, and you know, for like Disney, who has focus features or no searchlight, features as searchlight pictures was fox searchlight um you know that they are then going to bump up their disney plus subscribers with it so like their the business model is different as you're saying yeah it's changing but i don't think that they're going to completely dry up which is what this article seems to be kind of yeah trying to make us afraid of i will say like one of the uh you know a podcast that i listen to is the bulwark goes to hollywood and it's just striking whenever anyone talks about streamers it's like streaming platforms do not make money Mm, yeah it's like it yeah. it's it's just a strange thing to think about like for all the talk and the success in terms of subscribers like disney plus is an unmitigated success like they hit their benchmark for like 2024 two years early but they it does not make money yeah they're still not going to be <laughs> profitable from that for like yeah. 10 years or something right like and that, i think that's just how streaming services work it's like you have to play the really long game but yeah i've, I've heard some of those similar arguments that it's like netflix came and disrupted we're not going to have ads with our TV. Now you can just binge everything and we're yeah. going to disrupt the theater experience. But it seems like after over time, like people are wanting to go back to the theater more and now Netflix has ads. <laughs> like, yeah, like I, all those things thing, are kind of, yeah. I, I just really, I wish Netflix would just stop being so stubborn and just like do a real theatrical release. For, like there's no reason why, if there was going to be a month between the, the week that glass onion was in theaters and it premiering mm-hmm. on Netflix, there's no reason why it couldn't have been a two or three week engagement mm-hmm. because in the, the small, like it was in less than a thousand theaters. I think it was in less yeah. than 700 theaters and it did really well in those theaters and people wanted to yeah. see it and they should be really proud of what they did. And I think that the best advertisement for your streaming service is the prestige that comes with a box office release or or theatrical release. Um, So maybe they'll figure it out. Um, 
I mean, they're also, yeah. they're leaving money on the table. Yeah. That's the big thing too. And it's yeah, like they're, I guess they're hoping to get more subscribers when glass onion hits Netflix in a few weeks here, but is that ever going to be the equivalent of a big box office? Yeah. I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. The box office and streaming and all that. It's, I'm going to be really interested to see how things continue to play out. And then it's interesting. You look at like, I think one of the reasons the studio a 24 has been such a big deal is because they make fairly low budget things. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of prestige kind of things. And, uh, I think I would have to look at numbers. I don't know, but I, what I've heard, you know, they, they do pretty well financially are able to continue to expand. Uh, and, and the quality of the films is generally pretty well regarded. Well, they're a cult too. They're also a cult. Yeah. There's all all kinds of, uh, you know, a 24. It's it's almost trying to like create a lifestyle brand. Yeah, that's like really you can I, like you can subscribe and like get discounts at their shop and it's yeah yeah and like you're it's called like the triple a 24 subscription i've looked at it yeah it's and they, they also have like boutique blu-ray kind of things like mm. I, I bought their marcel the shell because it's really cool and i bought okay. their um lamb as well uh, i am gonna get the souvenir box set I'm excited yeah souvenir box that. set's cool um and so I actually haven't seen either of the souvenir films as an aside, but the eternal daughter from Joanna hog, same director is very, very good. So I'm really excited to, to watch the souvenir films finally too. Um, anyway, we can move on, I think from that, <laughs> but it's all interesting stuff. Um, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on the industry as in the next few years, how things unfold and, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. moving on i wanted to just see you know end of the year some more prestige things are coming out have you watched anything interesting lately uh oh this is that's right this is why i started to say i want i didn't want to be negative there was um i did i have seen a movie that i did not care for um you can be negative it's okay have you seen bones at all i have you didn't like it huh? <laughs> i thought it was ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> I love Bones and all, but go ahead. Tell me uh, I, my, my main critique is just that, um, you know, it's this coming of age film about intergenerational trauma that is played pretty straight as a, you know, as a drama. Um, and then every now and then they'll have these like breakthroughs, these emotional breakthroughs, and then they have to stop and eat somebody. And it was just, it was absurd. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. And I thought like, yeah. If there had been if if there had been a way to just not take itself so seriously, it might have worked. But totally, it was just off for me. Mm-hmm. And then also, I saw this critique that I agreed with that Mark Rylance's character was almost in a different movie, and it may have been mm-hmm. a better movie. <laughs> like he's playing it a like little bit more. So, a he's very whimsical, almost. Yeah. Level. Yeah. Um, and then you know, like. I'm not, no, I'm not going to say that because I don't want to spoil the ending. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, <laughs> but I thought, I did think it was, whole, ahead, I thought right. it was funny. I just, I laughed at the end. At the, like the, the part, the most dramatic part where you're not expected to laugh, I thought was hilarious. Interesting. I think you're talking about like the, not the final shot, but like the scene right before that. Yeah. 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 Um, the climactic scene. 
Yes. So I'll say about it. I like that it's, uh, so speaking about the tone in particular, I think there are times that it's, it's funny. Like there's almost like a sick pleasure, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think with it, like it's very macabre kind of thing. But like Mark Lawrence's character is a little bit over the top. And then also the scene, um, with Michael Stuhlbarg, <laughs> which I thought that scene was so funny and, and I thought it was good. Like I, I didn't mm -hmm. think, um, I, I agree that it is, it's totally it's like really interesting and you can almost um i don't know I, I guess i didn't think it was taking itself too seriously i was also like alone in the theater watching it just cackling to myself at different things <laughs> well i guess <laughs> but, like and it's like a serious movie generally but go ahead go ahead well i thought like the whole t i think this is this is what bothered me is after it was over i was just like is luca fucking with me <laughs> i think he is i think he is like i like like it's, it's like the the joke is to take this film and this subject matter and treat it so seriously and it's like yeah okay i get it but also just like it makes for a weird watch you know when somebody's like yeah um just sort of like grappling with the reality of their situation mm -hmm. and having this, these real emotional breakthroughs while you're eating somebody yeah and it's just, it's just weird and i just it didn't <laughs> it's really it just weird. doesn't doesn't work for me um yeah that's fair it is it's very strange and i think uh yeah i explained this movie to my wife i was like yeah so like there's like really heartfelt conversations between characters and they have blood all over their faces <laughs> because they've just eaten a human being uh, and it's but i i like the, the, the metaphor of you know finding your uh, your people and like all of mm -hmm. that, I thought worked really well. Uh, and I like, I thought the cinematography was very good actually too. I think a few minutes in, I was just like, I don't know what I'd, I'd been watching different things, but I was just like, wow, this cameraman knows what they're doing and it feels good. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a fan of that movie. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that I watched recently is all quiet on the Western front. Mm -hmm. It's a new Netflix movie adaptation of that famous war novel world war one novel and this is really good i liked it a lot the the cinematography is great um it's it's long it's kind of a i wouldn't say it's a slog because that sounds really negative but it's like you know you're in for a long war movie and and it's very much an anti-war movie and like that's what the novel was and um i haven't read it since like high school when it was assigned reading but there's a few so like watching through it's like oh yeah i remember the scene like there's a scene where he's stuck in a foxhole with soldier of the opposite uh, so he's a german soldier is our our main character he's in with a french soldier and they hit i won't i won't spoil it i don't know if you've read the book you know what I'm talking about, but it's like a famous scene there where he you know really reckons with the humanity of these people that he's out here killing and um and it it doesn't just like you there's not like a ton of just senseless you know slaughtering the enemy like it it pauses to let you like see this is a human being that is about to get killed and like i i like that about it. i think it does that really well I think it is, if I had read the novel more recently, I probably would have a better sense of the, like the side characters. Like we have the main character. Um, and I just, a few times like, okay, who is this again? Like that, there's a, a lot of different side characters, other mm -hmm. soldiers that are with him um, that I think, and it's also in German. It's a German production, mm -hmm. which I think is, is really cool too. Cause like mm -hmm. the other film version from like the seventies or whatever is American. And it's, I, as I recall, I watched it in high school too. As I recall, it's in English, even though they're German soldiers. And um, so this feels more authentic. The score is really good too. So yeah, I really like All Quiet on the Western Front. 
if you're in for a, a war movie it's uh I think it's also long it's like two two hours 40 i think so i think we need to re-examine what we think of as long yeah okay <laughs> but it's i mean i mean what was bones and all like two hours 10 or something oh probably um, yeah so yeah. like and i'm also acutely aware of runtime just i don't know because i have kids that i'm always trying to like okay can i squeeze a movie in here during nap time or whatever and it like you have to be careful losing but like rrr for instance fully three hours long but just flew by i thought it was great anyway um so yeah that's all quite on my front anything else you wanted to put on our radar oh yes absolutely uh so a week from our tuesday the 20th will be our next screening of the Arkansas Times film series. Uh, we are screening a film called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence by Nagashi, uh, yes. Nagashi Ashima. Uh, stars David Bowie, Bita Kishi, Ryuichi Sakamoto. Uh, takes place at a POW camp uh, during World War II. Um, I didn't know the plot of it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to be screening that. It is uh, definitely has one of the best scores of all time, or at least one of the best wow. original themes. I'll put it that way. Uh, like early in the film, um, when the, when the title comes, when the title comes on screen, there's like this needle drop of the theme and it's like, just, it's really hard. There's like a lot of bass in it. It's really impactful. Nice. Um, and it deals with a lot of interesting themes around, uh, grace, grace and forgiveness. Also some confusion sort of, uh, th- there's a question of sort of like why it is that they're in the situation. What are they doing? Why are they doing what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and with these soldiers all there that are in the same place together. Uh, so I hope people come out and, and see it. Um, I'm excited yeah. to be able to share it with people. And you said that's Tuesday, December 20th. Yes. Right? Seven, seven, yes. Tuesday, December 20th, 7 PM at Riverdale 10 VIP cinema in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yes. And I will link to uh, more information and tickets in the show notes. So yeah, please get out and go that. I think I'm going to be able to make it. Yes. We'll see. It's a busy time, but I'm really, I'm really hoping that I can. I like David Bowie as an actor in the few mm. things I've seen him act in. So that's a big draw for me as well. But, uh, another thing that I wanted to highlight is The Whale, mentioned mm. earlier, which is an A24 film, also mentioned earlier. Uh, Brendan Fraser is the uh, lead in it. And, um, Okay, so the the IMDb description says a reclusive English teacher attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter, uh, which is the plot. And and so that's Brendan Fraser as the main character, um, Charlie. Yes, Charlie. Mm. Uh, and his daughter is played by Sadie Sink, who I really like. Who She's in um, Stranger Things is where she's kind of most known for. And uh, some other things. She's in that Taylor Swift short film, <laughs> which I really like. Um, and she's good in that. I think she's a really wonderful actor. And then Hong Chow, I love in this film. She is, you may have seen her in The Menu recently. She's also in the Watchmen series a few years ago. Um, she plays Charlie's kind of best friend uh, in the film. And she's fantastic. Actually, I voted for her for supporting actress. I thought she was really, really great in this. The film itself, um, I think Brendan Fraser's really good in it. I A couple of things. First of all, just like as a film like the first half I was really on board with like the writing and everything that's going on. It does feel kind of stagey. Like it's based on a stage play mm-hmm. and like it's mostly in one location, not a lot of characters, uh, that sort of thing. Like it, it just feels a little bit like a stage production. Uh, and then about the halfway point, the writing starts to, to, I think get too melodramatic and kind of goes downhill pretty quick for me. Um, all in all, 
I think it's a pretty good movie. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And like Sadie Sink is really good. I think her character in particular is where the writing starts to be a bit of an issue. I don't, I think, I think the writing is the issue and not her, her acting. Um, but it actually, I, one thing I liked about it is that it sets up that there's a, a lot of religious themes going on that I did not expect at all. There's like some religious trauma involved in the story. And, uh, I always love connecting with those things. And I think it's done really well. And it just doesn't quite pay off um, as strongly as it could. So that's my complaints with the movie itself. I'm really curious to hear what different people say about this. Cause I, I actually have already seen some people critical of its depiction of fatness and like that, that aspect of it. And is that, is it helpful or not <laughs> in that conversation? Because it is on one hand, it's a very empathetic portrait of this man like you see his humanity a person you might you know not think twice about on the street kind of thing you see him and and really appreciate him as a person at the same time i feel like people there are people who will watch this and come away more fat phobic than before they watched it and i can't imagine that's the goal but there are scenes that are very clearly you're meant to be disgusted yeah. uh, multiple scenes of that and i just don't i, I question whether that's helpful I, I'm probably not the critic to listen to on that, but I, I, I'm very curious to hear uh, again, what other people say about it. Um, but I, I guess I'm a little dubious on, on that front uh, and then not super high on the script overall. Mm. So overall, not a, not a huge success for me, but very interesting film and one that I, yeah, I'm curious to see if it wins awards for, for acting. I know there's been some buzz around Brendan Fraser uh, and I do think he's, he's giving a, a great turn here. So that's the whale. There you go. I will say on the well, I'm excited um, just to see what what it's about. Because after Mother, I feel like yeah. Darren Aronofsky, um had rediscovered his talent. I maybe that's harsh. Maybe I don't think the, I don't he did anything really bad. I haven't. So I'm not an Aronofsky completist. I love Black Swan. Um, I have not seen Mother. I have not seen like pie or uh Requiem for a dream. So I'm, I'm just behind on him, I guess, but I definitely didn't like this half as much as, as black swan. I could say, I would say like mother's like fucking with you similarly, but, but it's in a way that's obvious. So I feel like it was, Mm -hmm. I was more comfortable with it. Like it's almost daring you to continue to watch it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I don't, I, I need to know more about Aronofsky in order to better appreciate this. Maybe that's part of it. Cause it is, maybe he's trying to provoke, provoke me more than I am giving him credit for. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'll do one more really quick. Okay. That is a really good one. Uh, the film is called close. It is from Belgium. It's actually, I think it's the Belgian, uh, you know, for the, for the Academy this year, it's like the Belgian submission for the Oscars. Uh, it's a very good movie. It is, um, very emotional. It is also an A24 film. Uh, it's from director Lucas Don't, and the star is a young actor named Eden Dambrin. Uh, it's about two young boys who are very close friends, and um, there's like a big plot point that's a spoiler that I can't talk about, but uh, it the performance from the lead is remarkable. Um, it's this, this, again, he's really young. He's, he can't be more than like 15 and he's playing a 13 year old. Um, and basically these two boys are so close and they get to school and, you know, as happens, they start to drift apart a little bit, different things kind of come in between them. 
um, and uh, there's some dramatic things that unfold. Uh, really, really strong movie. Pretty, um, I want to say triggering, <laughs> but again, I can't tell you why without <laughs> spoiling the movie. So that's that's a tough thing. But um, yeah, be be ready for something really emotional when you go to see this or, or rent it or whatever. Uh, but I do think it's really, really well made. So that's close. Oh, all right. Well, we can move on from what we've been watching and get into today's film. We are talking about Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Uh, this is a film that I, you know, was excited to see. And then again, it came. The, the reason I didn't do a show last week is because I had, had to vote and I had so many things I needed to watch. And that's been really true for several weeks. I was like, okay, I'm going to go see Black Panther, but I'm going to put it off until after the voting. Because uh, I didn't think it was something that would probably show up on my awards ballot. You know what? Angela Bassett is so good, though. I mm-hmm. might have voted for her for supporting. But, um, let's talk about it. So I'm curious first. So i we talked about this before in the podcast, but you are someone who knows a lot about comic books <laughs> and, and I didn't know that about you when we first met. And I was like, Oh, you like art films. And then I was like, Oh, you actually know a lot about comic books too, because that was in fact your college major. Yes. Art. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about that and, and just how familiar are you with black Panther as a comic book? Um, and then how do you feel about the first film? Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I majored in comic books. I went to SCAD and I studied sequential art. And uh, really growing up, it was like Marvel Comics in particular that kind of got me um, to the point where I wanted to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I, and, you know, like the major is focused on producing comics. So it's more about like drawing and writing and uh, mm-hmm. some theory, but not a ton of it. Um, and like with Black Panther, I would say like growing up in the 90s, Black Panther was not a huge character. Um mm-hmm. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a writer named Christopher Priest who uh, started doing, he, he did a run on Black Panther. And that was sort of my first major introduction to the character. I think before that, like he might show up in like a Fantastic Four issue or something like that. Hmm. Um, but that Christopher Priest run was like really groundbreaking to me. Um, he also, as an independent creator, um, I forget the artist that he worked with. Uh, I feel really bad about that now because uh, I'm a big champion of uh, artists and comic books. But uh, they they did a, a series called Quantum and Woody that was really good. It's an indie book. It was really, really funny. And like some of that humor carried over to his Black Panther run. Uh, and then characters in the film like uh, Everett K. Ross, um, who's 
played by the Hobbit. Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> Martin Freeman. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, also, uh, as I described, as like the token white guy. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, is, uh, yeah. Like, so he's from that Christopher Priest run, but I think a lot of it. I didn't know um, he's based on a comic. So is he white in the comics as well? Yes. Yeah, and he's like a CIA agent. CIA agent, and I think uh, visually he's actually like based off Michael J. Fox initially. Like, if you go back oh, and look at those books, he's very much like. I think it was kind of close to uh, Michael J. Fox being on Spin City, and I think that was sort of the vibe that they were going for with that character. Interesting. Wow. Um, and I, I think Martin Freeman's fine in the films. Um, I, I don't think that, I don't know what that character provides. I was going to talk about that. Yeah, we, we, we can later. talk. We'll yeah, talk we'll, we'll talk about that. But Because okay. uh, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. yeah uh, but I think like, um, and it seems like a lot of what they do in the films, some of it comes from the Christopher Priest run. Maybe some of it comes from the Coates, not Tanahashi Coates run, which I have not read. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the door Milaje and things like that are all in the Christopher priest run of the book. Uh, he did a lot of fleshing out of the, of the character. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. And, and, you know, like I like the first movie fine. I like the first two thirds of it. Um, mm-hmm. There's a problem to me, with the last act of the first black Panther, when it gets bogged down by the, what I call the marvelness of it all. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's just this big CG battle um, poorly rendered. Cause I think they changed it at the last minute. Um, mm. and it's just, yeah, the, this, the last fight is kind of boring to me. Um, yeah. but everything up to that is, it's like, you know, it feels like a real movie. And I'm also like a huge Ryan Coogler fan. You know, I saw Fruitvale station in theaters mm-hmm. and I saw like Creed is one of my favorite movies. Um, at least it was at the time. And I still think it's really great. Um, just like visually just stunning film. The fact that he was able to, um, do that with a character in a franchise that had been so well established mm-hmm. and sort of like reset it. Um, I think is really impressive. Um, and then I will be like, honestly, I was a little hesitant when he got the Marvel gig just because my, my fear was just that he would spend his career doing these instead of like smaller, more personal films, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of what has happened. Um, although yeah. some of that's COVID and some of that uh, is just like some of the production woes on the sequel, you know, not just COVID, but also like the star getting injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their the actual, the first star dying and then letitia wright mm. getting injured doing a stunt or something and then having to shut down production and all these other things so yeah, yeah so i was gonna ask about ryan coogler so you kind of answered but yeah, yeah. I, I agree fruitvale station is i think is really really good i actually haven't seen creed and it's it's one that i've meant to ca- catch up with and now that creed 3 is coming which I, I i've kind of like been out of the creed world but then i saw the trailer a bunch of times like jonathan majors is there I love Jonathan Majors. So I think I'm going to catch up with all the Creed things before Creed 3, which I think he's just producing, right? Because Actually, because Michael B. Jordan is the director. Of- right, yeah. He also just produced the second yeah. one, I think. Hmm. Anyway, yes, Ryan Coogler fan for sure. Um, and, but yeah, I agree. The first one, I think the first two-thirds or so are really really great, and the final battle is not, not as good. Um, yeah, any other thoughts about Ryan Coogler before we talk about this film? I think we can probably do like a non-spoilery section yeah. and then we probably have to talk about spoilers at the end. So yeah. How do you feel about Wakanda forever? Non-spoilers. Uh, so I did uh, the video for initial reaction with uh, Philip Vandy price. Yeah, I, I didn't watch it cause I, uh, I want to talk to you about it on here first. Go ahead. Uh, well, you know, uh, I think I gave it uh, whatever metric. I think we use stars. I gave it five out of five. Of course, you know, five when you record those, right, it's like right. right after watching the film. Yeah. 
yeah. I saw it a second time. And then I think after the second time, I said, well, maybe like a four. Um, mm. If I if I had to rate it, even though I typically don't rate things. Mm. But I still like I actually it, my opinion sort of rebounded after that because I'm, I just I'm so impressed that they had the guts to do what they did. Um, mm. Sort of using the film. I don't know if this counts as a spoiler or not, but using the film as a vehicle to process uh, the tragedy of the death of Chadwick Boseman. Right. Cause, yeah. and um, Marvel produced a podcast. Tana Hazy Coast did this interview with um, Ryan Coogler and they sort of talk a, a lot about their own relationships with Chadwick Boseman. And like this, the decision to infuse every frame of the film with that, I think was interesting mm-hmm. and bold and makes the film um it makes it a film in its own right and not just a piece of the marvel universe yeah 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 i think something you said when we in person recently was just like that it's impressive that ryan coogler is able to kind of still be you know an auteur or something in in in, within this machine and as you said earlier like the things that bonk either of these films down is when they have to tie into the bigger universe uh, which maybe gets into the martin freeman thing i think as well um but but yeah i agree the the honoring the legacy of one particular person in Chadwick Boseman. I think the film is really successful with that. And I don't think that's a spoiler to say, we don't have to go into details of, you know, where all that goes. Um, But the, I mean, it opens with the funeral and Mm. uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a tearjerker for sure uh, in in a way that I, more than I expected, even though I'd heard that I was like, wow, this is really emotional. They really do um, make that a big aspect of the, of the film for sure. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what other, what other non-spoiler things do you have to say about this movie? Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes I think it can be really easy, uh, to be very cynical about ideas around representation. But so the second time I saw it, uh, I saw it with a friend of mine who was in town for Thanksgiving and she brought her au pair, um, cause she's has an au pair, which is, it's, it's yeah, cool. like a <laughs> fancy living nanny. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So her au pair, though, is um, there's this program. I don't remember who runs it. It might be like the State Department. I don't know. It's like a foreign exchange type program Mm -hmm. where you can uh, come to the U.S. and live with the host family as their au pair uh, for a year. And then at the end of that year, you can either go to somewhere else in the country or go back home. And you also get to take classes while you're here and they have to pay you. Uh, So anyway, uh, her au pair is from southern Mexico and is actually Mayan. Like she's like, wow. she's like indigenous. Wow, wow. And so like seeing it and her being there and like seeing her just excited about Namor, like that yeah, was really wow. cool. And so um, mm-hmm. like I had a, a, like a similar experience with um, the all women Ghostbusters movie. just like being in the audience with someone and realizing like, oh, like this means a lot to them. Even, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. thoughts on the movie itself aside, like the, it matters to people and like seeing that matters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I was really happy with the way they handled Namor too. Cause um yeah it's it's one of those things where you could point out all of the changes from the source material but i think all of the changes were really strong well thought out um and makes the character more interesting hmm. interesting yeah i love the character of namor as well i love hearing that about the au pair story because uh, that's that's how i felt about and i think uh, you know, who cares what i think a lot of people felt about the first black panther and he's like little black kids are going to see this and like seeing this larger than life superhero and how amazing is that? And that the film could do that again in a way with the Namor character, I think is really cool. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I like the Namor character too because of you know his motivations. And so one thing that I think the first Black Panther does really well also is the motivations of Michael B. Jordan's character Killmonger. Uh, like they're out of maybe all the Marvel universe, the two Black Panther films now are some of the most grounded in like real world problems. Like we're going to actually talk about race and colonialism and all these things um, in a way that feels pretty meaningful and maybe surprisingly so for, for a big blockbuster like this. Uh, so I, I appreciate those things about it more about Killmonger in a little bit, actually, once we get into, cause one of the things I want to talk about, about the end of the film um, just kind of deals with, you know, his legacy from the first one. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think just as a film itself, did you, um, I mean, I guess you gave it five stars right off the bat. Yeah. So you, you liked it a lot because uh, I heard, heard some people say, yeah, the, it kind of goes off in the third act a little bit. And I think I would agree with that a, a somewhat. I think the final battle, well, better than maybe the final battle in the first one. I, I think it is. It's a, I think it, this movie is maybe a little bit too long, but um, I'd heard other people say, oh, it's much slower than the first one, which I could see that, but I didn't feel, you know, I am, you know, you know, no, this is, this is what it is though. This is what that the latter critique is that people forgot what a real movie is, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not just action, action, action. There's yeah, like, yeah. you set things up. You actually um, give characters a chance to have a scene. That's about something other than just forwarding the plot. Um, yeah, yeah. And so like you allow that to happen. Now I were when I, upon rewatching it where I would have to, lowered my grading or where I would is just um, some of the characters. I just, I don't watch the TV stuff because I don't like the idea of having to do homework, you know? And I feel like the movie should be fairly self-contained and this movie is fairly self-contained, but there are characters or at least least one character that I know is on one of the TV shows. Um, yeah, about and, Julie Louise Dreyfus. Yes, and I just thought that was obnoxious that they had to be there. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, yeah. Go ahead. I was just like, really, I, like the whole CIA subplot you could do mm-hmm. without. And this is so, like, going back to the Martin Freeman character, even in the first one, it just felt like they there was a mandate that you couldn't have an all black cast, mm-hmm. and they didn't. And so they were like, well, here's a character from the books that we can have, and they just didn't know what to do with him. Yeah. 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 It, that is, that is really interesting. So yeah, I, I completely agree that the, all the CIA stuff could have completely been excised from the movie and you could have like written that in, into the, the, you know, maybe you could have just had another, cause like there's a scene early on with the like United Nations, which um, has Toby from the West wing. I was like, Oh snap, it's Toby. Uh, cause I haven't seen him in anything in a long time, but, but yeah, I think you could have, maybe just use those characters or something, but yeah, it, it does like it, pretty much anytime Martin Freeman and Julie Lee Stravis were on screen. I was like, this has got to end. This is, it's like the worst parts of the movie by far. And, and generally speaking, um, I'm always like the token white character. Like you mm-hmm. said, I'm always interested to see how that plays out in movies like, you know, girls trip or mm-hmm. um, occasionally I watch those. Like it's movies that are, you know, marketed at black audiences, generally speaking, and they, they often do have like one white character I don't know. I get a kick out of those <laughs> dynamics for, for whatever reason. But um, yeah, I think I love Martin Freeman, but uh, his character is not great in this, but, um, but yeah, it's interesting to know that he is from the comics. But yeah, as you're saying, 
and Julius Dreyfus, I love, but I feel like uh, maybe it's just underwritten in this or something. Yeah, like that. I think the comedy between them wasn't working, and like all of that just was for a lot of reasons was not. Great. Well, it was just it was none of their relationship was established in the film, and I don't know if Martin mm-hmm. Freeman's character appeared on the TV show. I don't know to what extent that they had established their previous relationship, but like none of that in the film gets its own proper introduction. Yeah. And so it's just all shorthand, and so, and it's like, is this is this here by by mandate? Like, did you were you told mm-hmm. to tie it into the TV show? So, like, I don't know. That's what it felt like, like yeah. checking a box. Yeah, that that feels very possible, and yeah, I think it would have been a stronger. So, if I think it's a little too long, maybe you cut that stuff yeah. out, and it's yeah. pretty much the right length. Um, I'll also say I didn't love the, or I just think like maybe it could have been written differently. The Riri Williams character. Mm. wasn't my favorite and maybe on a rewatch i'd feel differently but um i just felt like she was less compelling than most of the other uh, major characters and then she ends up being a pretty big deal in like yeah. the final battle and stuff well it's funny uh, it seems like she's going to be a bigger deal going forward but go ahead well this is funny because like my reactions was like i thought they handled that more gracefully than they did in dr strange um even mm-hmm. though it's yeah, oh, for it's sure. the exact yeah. <laughs> same plot line exactly the same um yeah like which, which is true. nuts when you think about it <laughs> like it's, it's like yeah it is exactly the same and it is so much better yeah what's yeah. her name america Something yeah Ferreira. which no, 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 wait, not america to, an actress. uh america <laughs> chavez remember. is the character yes right? america yeah. chavez and, yes, the, yes, the, yes. and not to like she she does nothing wrong in dr strange it's just like that yeah. script had a lot of problems yeah completely um, underwritten yeah yeah and of course like that of course yeah. the difference there is like you know scott derrickson was writing and directing leaves um sam raimi comes in and is rewriting mm-hmm. as they're shooting right which yeah. is a completely different problem than uh chad with, with the yeah <laughs> to my ryan coogler yes completely different than yeah. ryan coogler situation <laughs> where like um you know like he talked about like giving getting up the final draft or the first draft of the script to chadwick bozeman like two weeks before he died or whatever and Chad was just like not having the strength to read it. And then, you know, getting to like sort of shut down production to rewrite um, and getting like prolonged stints to probably to rework things while they're shooting for reasons that aren't. I mean, actually, like the fact that this movie holds together the way as well as it does yeah. um, when they had to shut down for COVID, they shut down because uh, Letitia Wright got injured doing, I think, one of the stunts in the, was it? boston right I'm mit sure. like in like she it was, it was some car stunt in there is where she she injured her back mm-hmm. or something um and but it all it holds together fairly well to me um and again i agree I, yeah, yeah. yeah it has to do so many things you know honor chadwick is there going to be a new black panther and who is right. it like that all that i thought worked really well which we'll get into in spoiler yeah talk. um but yeah it does a lot and then introducing a whole new villain oh i think what i was saying earlier is that like in the first one, Killmonger's motivations are really strong and like he's such a grounded character. And I think Namor similarly mm-hmm. is uh, like you really believe what he's fighting for and like, do I kind of agree with this guy? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing, which you don't always have with the comic book villains. Right. So, yeah. Namor to me, I like Killmonger, I think is not sane. I like to me, <laughs> like he's just off somehow. Um, mm-hmm. I actually, I think there's also this problem 
a lot of people are telling on themselves like when they talk about like when they sign with the characters like thanos and it's like mm-hmm. you guys realize like thanos's argument is actually like really bad and it's like genocide and like <laughs> but it's just kind of weird uh namor has a legitimate concern right mm-hmm. he's like legitimately he is this is it's like he is as a ruler of people he has a responsibility to protect them um, and he sees how destructive the surface world can be and so he has these legitimate concerns even if i yeah. think you know perhaps you might try a diplomatic solution first um right right yeah but yeah but yeah and, but yeah i think that all works great and and his character design is really good mm-hmm. like I, I saw compared to the comic book like how he's a little bit different and everything but yeah i thought he was great yeah. and the acting but they kept the wings which i love yeah it's like embracing the weirdness yeah 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 i like that a lot um maybe we need to talk spoilers now okay we're gonna talk spoilers sure um because i want to talk about so spoiler warning spoiler warning uh about shuri who is the main character of this Mm. film and um well first of all do you have any spoilery stuff you want to talk about before i get into that i just think it's like gutsy uh just starting out by killing black panther off screen you know yeah um and then like and again the way that that sort of like the whole film is about everybody sort of coming to grips with that and that i love and like and you know when you read about how chadwood boseman dealt with his illness and the way he died whenever they talk about the character on screen is like oh i think Mm -hmm. they're just talking about what happened yeah and Mm -hmm. and like just making something this personal like something marvel like so personal and real um is what is like is why I, I think this is a legitimately like great movie yeah yeah i don't think i've ever seen anything especially a blockbuster you know do something like what you're yeah. talking about yeah absolutely yeah because I, I i was curious how they'd handle that yeah but it really does open with you know he's they're trying to save him off screen kind of thing and and then that scene ends up having uh you know, echoes later when she's, you know, she's trying to recreate the plant mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, so I think that that was not only handled in a respectful way to Chad, but Chadwick, but also just tied into the story. Like they really made the best of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. I think you know, from a business standpoint, whatever, it's like to, to create something creatively fulfilling as well. Um, yeah. I, I was really impressed with that also. Yeah. Did you uh, think, who did you think would become the new Black Panther? Because I, I think at first I thought of Shuri, but then I was like, maybe they would go in another direction with it. Um, no, um, I thought I thought Shuri. I thought Shuri. And, and this is something I don't know. Is that is there precedence for that in the comics? Uh, I think, yeah, there have definitely been more than one Black There has been more than one Black Panther, for sure. Um, you know, obviously, it's a long line of, of people. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if Shuri... That would... If if so, it would be in the Tanahasi Coates run, um, mm-hmm. which I have not read. Um, but I, I'm sort of excited. I would be curious to like kind of try to dig into it. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a million Marvel podcasts that are <laughs> yeah. more knowledgeable about those things. It's actually uh, I haven't listened to any of the um, podcast two four one stuff, but I'm sure they talked. Yeah. Well, I think all the, like Code started stuff. writing Black Panther in like 2018 or so, probably. Um, Shuri make the most sense, you know, mm-hmm. um, just because she's youngest 
character. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. She's like in line royally also the way yeah. that, you know, the King is typically the black Panther. Yeah. Yeah. I saw some people saying they should have, it should have been Angela Bassett, but I was like, you know what? Ryan Coogler wrote this script. He knows what he wants to do. I'm not going to second guess yeah. him. Yeah. And actually I was surprised that she died actually mm-hmm. speaking of yeah. um, Queen Ramonda. Uh, that was a, a shock to me, but one of the things I want to talk about that I really appreciated about it as well is Shuri's character is she's kind of a skeptic, you know, she's mm-hmm. a big scientist and she's, you know, got her like 007 lab. And then the Riri Williams character ends up kind of stepping into that role at the end mm-hmm. for, for probably future stories. But um, the sort of, she doesn't exactly vibe with the faith or like yeah. the cultural, you know, beliefs um, that Chadwick or T'Challa certainly did. And that Queen Ramonda does and all that. Um, and I think there's a scene early on that I really like. So they've just discovered that there's vibranium in other places, which is a shock because they thought they had the only, and like now you have myths and cultural things written around that. Like we have this powerful thing that no one else has. And um, Queen Ramonda says, you know, this changes everything. And then Okoye, which is um, Denai Guerrero's character. She says like the great mound, all of these legends, yeah. fables, those stories are seared in my mind. And then Shuri, who's working on something and she's kind of annoyed and she's very dismissive. She's like, well, that sounds very painful. Like the story is <laughs> seared in your mind. And she's saying it in the sarcastic way of like, you believe too hard, basically. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating. And, um, y- you know, just the idea of beliefs and changing beliefs is always something I'm, I'm interested in, in in a movie. But then that ends up playing out too with her. It's like, how does she, as a character who is, you know, very skeptical of that kind of stuff, how does she step in and, and honor her parents' legacy or or all of those things. Um, And where that kind of comes to a head is when she does recreate the flower. What is the heart-shaped plant or whatever it's called? I'm sorry, I'm probably getting those details wrong. But then, you know, we've seen T'Challa go to the ancestral realm or whatever it is when he drinks it and then speak to his father. And so, and now, you know, Angela Bassett's character has died. Clearly that's what's going to happen. We're going to get this parallel, right? But then no, it's Killmonger there. And I thought that was such an interesting touch and it really sort of aligns them in a way because Killmonger, you know, as you said, he's an insane person, <laughs> but, but I did hear a lot of, you know, commentary with the person like, okay, he has a legitimate point. Maybe that he's, you know, we have resources in Wakanda. We should be helping uh, people more than staying closed off. And so it, in a way it honors him, like just bringing his character back at all, I thought was cool. And the fact that, you know, they're kind of aligning in some ways um, and it doesn't, it, it never comes. I mean, I guess in the final battle when she has the chance to, to kill Namor and, but then, you know, mm-hmm. it is diplomatic instead, I guess that's where she steps away, but it's not like, Oh, Killmonger was super wrong. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't go in that direction where it, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting off track but basically she's so science oriented that like all these legends and fables seem kind of silly to her and in is having her her cultural beliefs kind of shifting um while shuri it, it never uh it's not like she's like oh i'm suddenly a believer again or anything like that but um she does sort of see both sides of things and is able to step forward and then i think it's cool too that so she has that that discussion with killmonger and then she um when she picks out her suit, it's, there's almost like a moment of like the, the kind of all black one, like what uh, T'Challa had. And then she looks at, and the one she chooses has the more yellow and kind of gold highlights like, like Killmonger's did. Um, 
so I just thought that was all the way they handled that. I, I was really impressed with. And uh, yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. She has an interesting arc in that. So she's dealing with the, the, the grief of the death, grief from the death of her brother. And, um, but she initially is the more diplomatic one after that, right? Like mm-hmm. she's the one when, when Namor, when she goes to, I forget the name of the city or, or even if I could remember it, I probably would butcher their pronunciation, but yeah, underwater. City. Yeah. Yeah. When she goes to not Atlantis, um, <laughs> like she takes on this very diplomatic role of like saying like, okay, we need to like try to negotiate with this. And she tries to be mm-hmm. a, a peacemaker. Um, but it's only after her mother dies that she's grown into like double grief. Right. And that's when she does her heel turn and is threatening to become a villain essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she has to sort of like find her way back from that. And I wonder like her being so focused on science and technology, I wonder how she would interpret the visions. Cause I know like yeah. as someone who's not a believer, I know how I would interpret that, which is really just mm-hmm. their hallucinations and that your yeah. brain is just constructing it when you're, when you're mm-hmm. under, you know, because yeah. she says something like that to her mother too, when yeah. she takes her out to the water, when they first meet anymore, but they're burning the, the cloaks. And she's mm-hmm. like, when I did this, I had such an experience that T'Challa was, you know, his hand was on my shoulder. And she says, that was all in your head, mom. Like that, yeah. your, your brain, that was a construct of your brain. Um, and then I think her mother says something. Oh, I can't remember the exact line. I wish I could go back and look at it, but she says something like, Oh yeah. The line is like, um, well, do the constructs in your brain bring you, comfort or turmoil yeah. but that was an interesting and, and like you know an argument for faithfulness i guess is you know is this helping or hurting you or like a, your own lack of faith is it hurting you so i i, I thought it reckoned with that yeah again in a way that it's like oh this marvel movie is is going there in ways i didn't expect that i that i liked a lot so yeah kugler yeah. is a deep thinker uh and i know he had a co-writer on this so maybe he doesn't get all the credit but like all of his scripts are really solid you know like he's, he's like a really good writer of like grounded material even mm-hmm. like this when you're dealing with something as absurd as with as a serpent man not really a serpent man but he wears like the <laughs> green uh snake yeah. skin trunks when he has wings on his feet and they're breathing underwater and, and all of this stuff and but like it's all fairly grounded um yeah yeah i just think i think it's just like a really well done and it's again it's like a real movie like the people who talk about the pace, you know, say like, it's not, it's like paced like an early two thousands film. Like it's paced like Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which you know, the, that for sure. is what, is, that's what we used to get. And that was fine because they were movies first, right? Like not mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. about furthering. Um, yeah. Some serialized story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. just about servicing the IP. Um, yeah. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I completely agree. I, as that, the more I've thought about this movie, the more I like it. And the, and the more I think like the black Panther movies are some of the best. Yeah. I think they have to be some of the best films in the, in the Marvel world. Um, yeah. There you yeah. Go. I'm curious whether they'll make a third one and all that. I think there's discussion around yeah. that. But, I think there will be a yeah. third one. I, I, I wonder, so like, you know, Brian uh, uh, or Michael B. Jordan is, certain directors just have actors that are, just are in all their films. So I'm kind of mm-hmm. wondering if Ryan Cooler came back for a third one, how they, if he would how try to continue that. Uh, well, Namor's still around too, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like Namor can continue to be a, a force in the, the universe. Right. Which that's the other thing, like with some of this Marvel stuff is like, 
So I don't know how much of this you know, but before Marvel started producing their own films, they essentially licensed a bunch of their characters to different movie studios, mm-hmm. which is why Spider-Man is at Sony, right, yeah. X-Men and Fantastic Four are at Fox, uh, Hulk was with Universal, uh, Namor, I don't remember where exactly Namor was, but I wonder, I think there's a rights thing similar to the Hulk thing where he can be used in films, but not in a solo project some weird thing like that um and so i i'm sort of excited to see how they utilize namor you know there are long stretches of uh, comics um continuity where it's almost like namor's job is to show up um be in love with sue richards right uh invisible <laughs> woman uh and just kind of like i don't know like kidnap her or just do it's just like they're oftentimes like the writers don't really know what they're doing mm. with him. Um, and I, and so again, I think like Ryan Coogler, they did a good job of establishing Namor as an entity, as a character with his own personality and his own motives mm-hmm. that go beyond like the two dimensional, um, like what, what could be just like a two dimensional, two dimensional portrait, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's another thing of, of the Black Panther movies. They're some of the best, some of the most grounded and have probably the, some of the best villains, I think, in, in the whole MCU as well. Yeah, yeah well, that's uh, Black Panther Wakanda forever. Any final thoughts on it before we wrap things up? Um, no, I'm just, I'm excited that it exists, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm oh, trying to watch oh, it again, I too. will say this, right, though. Right, right. Uh, uh just like even even the very end, like the um before the mid credit scene, just mm-hmm. like when she actually burns the robe, that is like the most yeah. beautiful and like the use of Rihanna's song, it's like the mm-hmm. most like appropriate yeah. um tie-in song that I that I think I've ever that I could think of, you know. Wow. Like it just fits so well. Um and it's really yeah. touching. Yeah, and the images over the, the yeah. credits too. It's like the close-ups of the fire and yeah, yeah really gorgeous. Yeah. Yes, yeah. really beautiful for that. I think it's it's going to be memorable amongst all the MCU things, mostly maybe because of the all the Chadwick things mm-hmm. that are it's so so moving. But there you go. Yeah. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, still in theaters, so you can go check it out if you haven't seen it. Uh, we've spoiled everything for you now. Um, well, we haven't spoiled everything. What did you think about the mid-credits scene, actually? I liked it. I thought, uh, yeah. I, I think I saw it coming. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a way to have your cake and eat it, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Set it up for, you know, 12 years from now, you can have a new yeah. adult Black Panther. New T'Challa. Yeah, yeah. New T'Challa. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this far-ranging discussion we talked about all kinds of stuff i really appreciate it it's good to have you back on the show and uh we'll have you back soon huge thanks to omaya we talked about a lot and it was fantastic thank you omaya stay tuned to your podcast feed and make sure to subscribe coming up we've got some best of the year specials plus plans for an episode about tar an episode about women talking and more And with that, thank you, thank you for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes and you can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Art House Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthousegarage or find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Art House Garage t-shirt 
at arthousegarage.com slash shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, and that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about Arthouse Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe, or you can email me directly, Andrew, at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free. 